So for me, that's validation that yes, these venues and that ghetto and they might be gone, but they're fundamentally there'll always be this gay culture. And we will always have that. There will always be the people that are really pushing and striving because that's what those people were um, in the 80s and the 70s and the 90s. They were people that were, they showed a different version of society. Hello, my name is Kay Anderson and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode, I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories they created there, and the people that they used to know. Gay Sydney in the 90s was a magical time, according to today's guest, chef, YouTuber, and podcaster Andrew Pryor, who lived very close to the city's main gay hub, Oxford Street, in the early 90s. Our conversation in today's episode focuses on this area, which Andrew dubs the gay ghetto, just so you know, at two different periods in his life. The early 90s, when he was a teenager just living out of home for the first time, and the late 90s, early noughties, when he was a little older and some might say wiser, I'm not sure who, but some. We talk all about the massive success of the film, the adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and the impact that that had on the scene, hen parties, body image, and Andrew's lost space, The Midnight Shift. I talk about this a lot when I ever have sort of reunions and things like that and we, you know, with people and we start talking about the good old days and there's just no way. The, the amount of things that we did uh, back then, if there were smartphones, we just wouldn't have done them. And I don't know what it is. It's like, you know, I feel like I'm sounding really old when I say that. But I'm sort of thinking, are people really going and doing the things that we used to do? Are they really going out and doing that in this day and age and people are recording it? I mean, I'm not on the apps. I don't know what happens. So, okay, maybe you need to be a bit less vague, like going out and doing <laughs> the things we did. What What are you talking about? Well, no, like going out and, you know, like are they really going and what's a good example that I can give? <laughs> um, well, you know, there's moments when you get a little bit excited. It's maybe four uh, o'clock in the morning. On. You're uh. at a venue, and you know, there's you've met somebody and they're very yes. attractive, uh-huh. and you do things. And maybe you're in the middle of a dance floor. Do what? Um, well, I'm not going to get into it. I let your imagination run wild. What? So you like play Scrabble with them? Well, that's exactly right, yes. You play Scrabble in the middle of the dance floor of the RHI. Um, and, and, you know, there's other people around and that's why it's good because they're knocking the board and, you know, that that, that means you can get more points because your words uh-huh, have changed. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, 
Yes, we're playing Scrabble on the middle of the dance floor. So there's no way I would play Scrabble on the middle of the dance floor if I was had the opportunity to be photographed. I mean, you could imagine that. Even if you um, were getting a triple word score? Yes, even if you were getting a triple word score, and I have seen that um, on the dance floor before. And I'm sure those people that were doing the triple word score would not want um, to be photographed at the time. Okay. Um but so those those nights then when you were at home and you were trying on clothes and you were looking in the mirror, what was like what was stopping you from leaving the house? How I looked in the mirror. Um, definitely. So Sydney at that time was a, there was a lot of uh gym bunnies, so to speak. It was a lot of uh, about the way that you looked. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, I didn't really fit in with that. And I think that also, I think from growing up when I was a, a kid, uh, I, I'm adopted. So I, I do attribute a lot of uh, stuff to being adopted. I think that um, I found out from the kid up the road told me that I was adopted when I was like 12. My parents oh, never did. Fuck. And um, and so I do think that that had a big, big impact. And so I knew that I was different with being gay, um, but I just sort of never had that. Uh, it's something I attribute to a lot of people that are adopted is that they always want to be loved because mm-hmm. you kind of think, why did your parents give you up? And so I think that I just always wanted to be loved. So if somebody made just the smallest remark about me, that would be something that I would keep in my head for ages and ages. And for some reason, I don't know why, but it was never the gay thing. I mean, I got called, um, uh, I don't know if you could say poofter anymore. Can you say poofter? Well, this, poofter? yeah, I mean, I don't know who knows? Are. I don't know. But look, this is what they used to call me. So I can only say, I'm only saying it because that's what they used to call me. But they used to call me poofter prior. And I had that every day from at school and I would... Um, I'd have to wait. There was this, we used to walk in mass online from the school to the train station to get the train. So I had to stay at school and walk at the back of that line because if I got to the train station early, I'd get bashed. If I was in the middle of that line, I'd get harassed or bashed. Mm. So I stayed at the, the end of the line and had to run to get the train and then make sure I was in the same carriage as what the guard was on. And that was my daily experience. And for some reason, I never had an issue with being gay. But if, say, for an example, one of those kids said that I was fat or if my mother said that, no, you're not wearing that because you don't look good in that because it was like it was possibly something that was probably a bit too gay, um, but I would I would take offence and, and really um, internalise and, yeah. and overthink about that, about the way that I looked. Um, or the things that I was doing, but not the gay thing. Do you think that that's because one of those things you have control over and one of those things you don't? Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe. For some reason, I just thought that other people, when it came to being gay, that was other people's problems, not mine. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like I've had, I've got the same kind of experience. It was always just like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I'm gay. And then, but like I would beat myself up over all of these other things about me that people found a problem with and wanted to criticize. Yeah. So, so I left school at 15 um, and then I left home at 17 and 
went straight to Sydney. So I grew up in Wollongong, mm-hmm. um, just on the outskirts of Sydney, and then went straight to Sydney. And basically it was all gay, gay, gay from there. I mean, my first, <laughs> um, the first place that I, that I lived in was Taylor Square. So that was like the heart of, uh, of gay um, Sydney, and for want of a better word, it was the ghetto. You know, we all lived in the ghetto um, because oh, I, that's I can't what you pay did. For that sample, so don't. Sorry, d- don't sing oh, too much. Oh, I do that. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, you—that's what we did. We all went there, and so, okay, that's so, what it was so, like. So, I'm going to ask like an ignorant mm. question, mm-hmm. like casting your mind back. You didn't have the internet or smartphones. Like, you get to Sydney. Like, how how did you find the gays? Again, it's, I don't know, it's something weird. It was just sort of, um, it just sort of happened. Before I moved, like when I was, I remember, I think I was 14, was the first time I went into like a gay venue, uh, 14, 15. I had my school bag with me at the time, so I was still <laughs> in school. And um, I remember it had something like Guns N' Roses rule on it or something like that. I remember I grew up in Wollongong. <laughs> so, um, I mean, secretly I was um, uh, listening to Banana Rama, but, of course, I didn't write that on my my school bag. Um, I know. And they did rule. Um Moving right along. It just, I just found it. it. I don't know why. I don't know how. I just remember walking along one day and just walking past the shop and like it was a bookshop and I went in there and they were like, oh, what's this? You know? <laughs> so I find it, I had this conversation just the other day with somebody about, with a mother, um, about, you know, kids getting internet on porn and things like that on the internet these days. And I'm saying, and I said, well, I said, I kind of found the same sort of thing before there was internet. Um, it's just a natural thing to do. I mean, I, I, obviously it's a bit different these days, but I just, you know, the the premise is still the same, uh, I think. And so... And you just kind of like honed in. You just knew. Yes. Okay. It was like a sixth sense. Oh, it's so interesting. I don't it's know. So I'm gay though. Like I'm gay, gay, gay. So I think that that's, I think that fundamentally you find your own. You, but there wouldn't you, have been like a flag or anything outside. No, no. But you, I just need to say, like, we're di- we're just going to talk about me for a minute. So sorry about that. Yes, but no, you that's just right. jogged it my won't memory. be long. <laughs> <laughs> I can talk. Come on, now I'll let you talk. Go. On. Yeah. Oh gosh, come on. The, the quicker you let me start, the quicker this will be over with. Um, you've just jogged my memory that. Uh, when I was really young, like I was obsessed with music. I used to just spend so much time in the record shop and I would have been like nine or 10 or something. And the guy in the record shop said to me, oh, have you heard um, of the new Michelle Nidicello album? And I was just like, what? What are you like? What? I don't know. I don't know who that is. I don't know what you're talking about. But now, like, just thinking back, I'm like, oh, my God, he was totally, like, just signalling to me. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're queer and I'm queer. You should get this record. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's just fascinating how we used to find each other in organic ways. No, true. And I think it is. It was a sixth sense. And I... I, I um, I don't want to sound old here because um, I'm only 48. Um, I know you wouldn't believe it by looking at me. Oh, sorry. <gasps> really? I know. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you for that. I know I don't look a day over 27 and a half in dog years. Um, but um, I think that there's a bit of that lost with things like apps. And I won't get on my my soap um, box about it, but, you know, you used to be able to walk up a street 
down a street and give a guy a look. And the next thing you knew, you might have been, you know, in their apartment or behind a, bar, uh, behind a yeah thing playing Scrabble. Exactly. <laughs> um, it, that used to be a time. And it wasn't just because we lived in, like I lived in Sydney, the you know, one of the gay capitals of the world, most amazing place to be in the 90s and the noughties. It really was. It wasn't because of that. It was just this is, you know, this would happen in a in a country town. This is what would happen. And it's the things that people sort of, you know, when you when people write about things or do movies about things, they try to pick up on that, this this look that people mm. give. And there is something in that. It is a sixth sense, I think. It's sort of a, a, just something clicks. Well, and you know what happens you just now? find your space. So what happens yes. now, like there isn't that spontaneity. If you see someone in the street and you're like, Ooh, oh, I think they were looking at me, rather than like following it up and like going and like seeing what happens, you put Grinder on and see whether they're on Grinder, and then start a conversation with them there. Yes, and you know why? <laughs> One of the reasons why we had to do that is metrosexuality. We made all these straight guys like really hot. Oh, we stop. said, oh, you know, stop. you know, we did. We like said, oh, let's all be like, let's all get the gay, the straight guys to look like Ben Beckham, and let's get them all to go. You know, oh, it's like fabulous. All these boys like us, and now when we walk up the street, we can't tell who's gay or who's European. Uh, it's outrageous. No, no. <laughs> oh, come on now. Come on. I live in a small French country town and I say to my husband all the time, do you think he's gay? And we go, nah, he's just French. <laughs> <laughs> sorry for any French listeners out there. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, so Sydney, in the 90s, you rock up, you move into a share house? Yes. So um, one of the many places, I mean, I've lived in many places, um, uh, which is a common thing. Um, uh, for people, I, my husband, my now husband and I, uh, were chatting, um, the other day, I always like to reference a queen by the way, um, in when I talk, my now husband and I, um, we were talking about this the other day. I think we've both lived in something like 30 or 40 different places. Oh, and in, shit. in fact, at one stage, we actually lived in the same building at the same time in the same apartment, but on different floors. So I was in the first floor and he was on the eighth floor. Oh, and wow. we never knew each other. We would have, and I don't think we see, we didn't see each other in the lift because I was on the first floor. I always used to walk up and down the stairs. Um, and that was just, uh, I mean, you know, uh, picture this. It's Sicily, <laughs> 19, whatever it is. No, right, picture, the, picture, picture this. This is Sydney in the 90s and the noughties. You had the Albury Hotel, the Flinders Hotel, the um, Oxford Hotel, the Exchange, DCM's, uh, Midnight Shift, uh, the, oh, there's just so many other bars that I can, the Bentley Bar, um, uh, and then the not so the gay bars that was sort of gay, the, you know, there was, I can't remember the name of it now, the courthouse, that's it. Um, and then later on, ARC, uh, DCMs, um, there was just so many venues uh, in the one street. 
sort of, you know, mile, magic mile, I think they used to call it, something like mm-hmm. that. Um, Sydney was a really amazing place to be as a young gay and to live in that time because this was a time for me, I grew up with the Grim Reaper was this ad campaign mm. um, in Australia about um, HIV and getting HIV AIDS. So I grew up that you always had sex with a condom. We didn't have PrEP. We didn't have that. Um, It was that you had sex or you didn't. And we didn't have the internet with bareback porn and things like this that sort of influenced people. It was... It was really, for want of a better term, a scaremonger, you know, sort of thing that this is what you had to do. Mm. And as a somebody that was, you know, like I was in 1990 when I moved out of home and moved to Taylor Street, I was 17. I was still, I wasn't legally supposed to be able to go to pubs. And so, you know, I didn't have that group of friends who had friends that had passed away or were passing away. I was creating new friends. And so for me and that generation, it was a really amazing and, like, I think very positive space um, because it is where we found acceptance and where I say, you know, we created our own, my, a new family. Um, you know, my family, they didn't chuck me out, but I left because it wasn't the best environment. Um, I, um, I talk about my parents. Uh, they both passed away now and they were amazing. Um, I'm adopted actually and they adopted me um, as a baby and they already had three kids of their own so they didn't need to do that. Um, but I described them as they, they weren't the Oprah generation. They didn't get taught to talk about feelings and things like that. You know, my mum's my mum's mum was Czechoslovakian and uh, and my mum's father was Italian and died at a very young age. So she didn't have that sort of, you know, she was sort of had to look after her siblings, mm-hmm. um, so to speak. So, and they had no gay people in their life. Um, and so, you know, I, I remember my mother um uh, saying to me, uh, she found my porn one day and she threw it at me and told me my um, father hates effing poofters. And, you know, like it took a long while for her to, it wasn't really until I met Peter, um, mm-hmm. uh, that my husband, that she really accepted your husband? that you have I was husband? gay. Well, I have a husband, yes. Sorry <laughs> about that. I should have told you that before we started. Um, you haven't mentioned uh, him. I oh, know. Um, but uh, so it wasn't until I met him that she could then, re- they could, my parents could then relate to something, you know. How can they relate to me going out and dancing and going to the Mardi Gras and being in the Mardi Gras? How can they relate to these things when there was no examples of that in their society? There was no sort of, you know, um, their friends didn't have friends that were gay. There was nothing, you know. They were from, they. this was middle-class, working-class Australia. Yeah. It's not like now. So I'm not like in what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to like insult your parents or anything. I'm just trying to ask a question. And I think it's probably similar with my parents in that they kind of want my life to follow a particular pattern. But the fact that we are queer means that we get to reject that heteronormative set of expectations that are thrust upon us. And so do you not feel like it's kind of a bit, I don't know, like we'll accept you if you're playing by a certain set of rules. No. So my theory, I don't have kids. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't think I ever will. I've got golden retrievers. And um, if you've ever met my golden retrievers, you'll understand why I say that I probably shouldn't have kids. Um, because, yes, I'd be, if you ever see those parents with their kids running around in the background, um, destroying <laughs> other people's um, places, that is, that's like my golden retrievers. Um, but I sort of, I've always said, and I have this theory, I actually know, I think I stole it from somebody. I think somebody else said it, that... Um, your your childhood and your parents' relationships, it's all about expectations. And so when your your parents have expectations on you as a child of who you're going to grow up and be, and you, as you get older, then have expectations on your parents of who they should be. And it's just a downward spiral because nobody can live up to anybody's expectations. You can only live up to your own, basically. You set goals for yourself and you do things that you want to do in life. life. And I I don't think that you can um, uh, go, like, so I'm over-intellectualising on this. I think that, you know, they did the best that they could do um, and I think all parents really do. Mm. And I just think that, yeah, I, I, I can't. I think that if my parents were around now and I was growing up as a 16, 17-year-old and they had all the things that we have now and that they had lived through when they were a kid, they'd grown up and watched Oprah and all of that sort of stuff and they'd seen RuPaul's Drag Race and all of that sort of stuff, my parents would have been like, you know, you go. Like Andrew, mm. you like you know mm. they would have been really supportive because I think that it would have been something that they would know and they would do up until a certain point. Like if they had to pay for me to be a drag queen um, to go to drag queen lessons, they probably wouldn't have oh. done that. Um, yeah, because no, I was actually a very good boring dancer. I could just say um, when I was a child, and then when I was supposed to get private lessons, they stopped because that was going to cost too much. So there was my strictly dancing, ballroom dancing um, career. Just you know, squashed. Um, no, I just and you know, it might be that like. I'm bringing all of my own kind of commitment issues and things to this. But, you know, there's lots of people that I talk to that are like, when I was coming out, I didn't want to tell my parents until I had a boyfriend or until I had a girlfriend, because then it would be acceptable to them, because then I could show them that I could kind of be happy and live a happy life. And I just think it's kind of like... You can be happy on your own. Well, this is a bugbear I have a bit at the moment. Um, not with everything, but with a lot of um, with a lot of culture at the moment. It seems to be that you know to be accepted, and I get I get shouted down from this within friends when I bring this up. So I'm probably going to get shouted down on your podcast. <laughs> by me or by my listeners? Everybody, everybody, okay, the whole I'll world. Get ready. I'll uh, get ready. Yes. <laughs> but to, to be accepted that we have to get married and have kids. And, you know, I find that difficult because it's I don't want to have children. And, look, I'm happy that I'm married. Um, He's the best husband I've ever had. Um, He could also be the best third husband I've ever had. Um, But we will see about that. Um, It's been a good 15, 17 years now, so I probably won't happen. I'm too old. Holy shit. Um, But, you know, Joan Collins is um, uh, a big inspiration. Um, Mm -hmm. No. (laughs) Actually, no, sorry, I can't be that, Peter. But no, but 
why is it that we see all of this on within straight life uh, on television? People are fifty shading of graying. They're you know that they're bringing in all of these um, you know sort of other different sexualities and relationships and 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 things on television that we can see this in society and books and movies, but we can't see that with gay life, like. You know, if they if they did a biopic on the village people, I bet none of them would have sex. Um, it seems to be that the the road to acceptance, and this is where I get myself into trouble. The road to acceptance is about um, about conforming. getting married and having kids. Yeah, yeah, and conforming, and that's what I really can. I just say I really love about this generation now because I think it was this was like for a sort of five years ago or so. But what I'm really liking now is these these people that are coming out and going just, you know, this is who I am for want of a bit of like, you know, the, what's that great, um, the greatest showman song, this is who I am. Um, to know. You know, everybody's out there doing that now. And I think that is great. I think, you know, if you want to be the person that is all about makeup and, you know, that you walk out and you're all male clothes and you're wearing makeup and that's the way that you want to be, that's fabulous. If you want to be going off on a dance floor and playing um, uh, triple score um, Scrabble, that's fabulous. I think people are doing that now. Like right now, I think it might be partly because of the pandemic, who knows, it might be partly because people are just sort of, like okay, well we we are accepted, and mm. there was all these people that did go out and get married and have kids, and good on them, more power to them. It's great, good on you. But there's a whole lot of us that don't, and there's a yeah. whole lot of us out there in the world that are being embraced, and we're finding, and I think those people, especially this generation now, are finding that you know they didn't have to do the thing that we did. We had to create a ghetto to do that. We had to create this space in Darlinghurst in in Newtown that was where we all lived and and we were all the same. Um, And thankfully in the world we don't have to do that anymore, Um, that they can just, you know, you can be a drag and and, um, be a queen in the middle of Wisconsin Um, and you can do it, you know, in good old gay London town. Mm. I mean, it's kind of this pendulum swinging, like does it then like set these expectations that you have to be different. <laughs> no, because just, well, who's to say we're all different? Exactly. No, exactly. But like, what you yeah. know, these, these people that are like their life's ambition is to get married and have children. To, are they now feeling the pressure that they need to not do that? <laughs> well, maybe they are, but then, but then that's, they will realize that that's the same thing that happened to my parents. Like that's the same thing that happened to my parents. I often say that my parents were also, I don't think meant to have children. They didn't, I don't think they particularly liked raising four kids. Um, they never gave well, the impression that they did. And my siblings definitely um, have issues over my parents who, as I mentioned, they're both, they're both deceased now. But my siblings still have issues about my parents and the fact that they oh, weren't wow. the best grandparents. And I'm thinking to myself, hold on, like, like they're passed away now. Like, Get over it. Like you can't, you can't bring back the past. You can't make them better grandparents when they're no longer here. You can't make them better parents. You just have to accept that this is who they are, are and move on with your life. And I mean, I did that when I was 18, 20. And they mm. they haven't. And I think that, um, you know, uh, I've met plenty of people that have uh, been in relationships and never had children and had been in a relationship for, you know, like their whole life. 
and been married and not had children. So I think that, you know, society in a way pressured my parents to have children. Mm-hmm. And, well, yeah, because um, that's the thing. Like for know, me when, you know, when I came out to my parents, they just assumed that I was going to be like this promiscuous, slutty gay and then kind of just not that there's anything wrong with that oh no i mean and like they were totally on the mark but um mm. they then just they then just benched all of their like expectations that i was going to get married and have children and so i never get that pressure from them i never get like oh so when are you going to settle down and when are you going to have kids um they just kind of expect that I'm out there whoring it up. And like, so for a straight person, it must just be so annoying to have that conversation with your parents all the fucking time when they're like, oh, by the way, when are you, when are you getting married? Don't you think it's about time that you had children? Like, that must be hellish. And like, so you must, it must just be easier just to have a kid. Yes. <laughs> and get married. And hence the reason why you get divorced. And yeah, I know. It's that's interesting. I mean, you know, like I was with uh, you know, Peter is the first boyfriend I've ever had. What? Yeah. Oh, so I had wow. one for 6 weeks. Uh-huh. Um, but that was it. And uh, so I don't really class that as a boyfriend, six weeks. Um, but uh, so then, you know, it was 15 years before we got married uh, that we were together. And we didn't move in for the first year of being um, together. We sort of like that was it. And, you know, we just did it our way, the way that we wanted to do it, our relationship. And I think that's what when it works Yeah, yeah. is when you just don't, conform to other people's rules and stereotypes and all of that sort of stuff. We are just Peter and Andrew. So we're the Peter yeah. and Andrew show, um, which if anybody wants to contact me, you can via my website. I'm um, happy to show. do that. Yes. Um, <laughs> just so that you know, though, I am the star and Peter will be the silent character um, that will be in the contract. He's a lawyer. I'll make sure that he puts that in. Um, but, yes, let's get back to the midnight shift. Yes. Okay, so for me, I'd like to, there was two different times of the 90s for me, and especially it was really interesting in regards to the shift because, for me, the midnight shift when I was really a young day, I mean, I was not supposed to be there. I was underage. Um Uh, but nobody ever checked. But it used to be a refuge, so to speak. So I would fall asleep in the back of the, um, in the back of the, there was like these little booths um, with lounges in them at the back of the upstairs bar, um, which was a dance floor. And there'd be dance music going and I would fall asleep in the, um, in the booths at the back because uh, I'd be waiting for the first train home to Wollongong. And it was safer to sleep there than it was to sleep at the, um, at the station. God knows how I fell asleep when there was dance music going on in the background. Um, and Scrabble games to be played. And Scrabble, no, I think the Scrabble <laughs> games have moved on. Um, for me, it was very much a, a refuge and uh, a place to go to. And I don't think that I was really heavily uh, involved in uh, a sort of a gay family, so to speak. I, I sort of had a few friends, um, but it was just more acquaintances. And you had your flatmates, but that was mm. it. Mm. Um, I didn't really have a lot of friends until I, so I then moved, uh, sort of mid 90s, I moved to the inner West and then came back 
And in the inner west, I sort of found a family of, um, and I sort of stuck with that group for a good 15 years. They were like my best friends and we did everything together. And that's sort of that later part of the 90s. It was magical, the shift. And, um, you know, they renovated it. Um, it used to be called Tropicana's. And so um, I used to do drag in the Albury um, for a little period of time. Bad drag, I will say. So, um, can we? So, let's go back. Yes. Let's go back. Mm-hmm. So, you had like you dipped your toe into the gay scene when you still lived in Wollongong, yes. and then and then you moved to Sydney when you were seventeen. Yep. Did you have like career plans or aspirations or was it just I am going there to just have no, a good time? I was gay and so I worked to, pa- to party and yeah. I worked to pay for that. I remember going from dance party to my job uh-huh. um, and not Stinking going Stinking of cigarettes. Yes, yes. <laughs> Those were the days. We were living the gay life. Like it was gay, 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 gay. You know, when you when we had Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras was on that day and the next day we just used to sit there with our front door open and, we would take out chairs out and sit out in the street on the footpath oh, wow. uh, with sun chairs and just like be like talking to people that would just go past and if they were cute, we'd invite them in. Um, and um, <laughs> there was just such a community there. Like it was really a fabulous uh, space and, you know, you you could stay in that bubble. And, I mean, I did. I stayed in that bubble for a very long time um, and didn't go out of it and, that made it safe. So I didn't have that experience if I was continually going from Wollongong to go to a venue every day, every night, I know that I would come across things that I didn't come across when I was in Oxford Street. And so occasionally you get people drive past and yell out you're an F and this or, you know, why are you a poofter or something like that. But you really didn't get to experience some of the other things mm. that people that that didn't have that opportunity that didn't come into um, into the into the ghetto, so to speak. Um, it was it was yeah, it was a great space to be in in that nineties. And I mean, oh, um, when you had Mardi Gras, that was just amazing. Like, you know, I never I never went overseas before I met Peter. And the reason being is that we would I would always take my four-week holidays at Mardi Gras. So in Australia, you get four weeks off every year uh, from your job and we would take them at Mardi Gras because that was the party. Like that was the, it was a month-long experience and every from everyone, every gay from around the world would come to Sydney and go mm. to Mardi Gras. You know, in the 90s, a million people were watching the parade like, you know, mm. were coming in to watch it. There was so many people. Now they struggle to get 250,000 um, to come in and watch it. These were people, uh, especially Americans, were like coming in boatloads, just <laughs> coming over and they would they would stay for, you know, the places like The Shift, The Aubrey, all of those places would be completely different, um, you know, ah. especially, you know, they would just completely change. It would be full of all of these tourists, full of all these people from around the world, um, and so, yeah, you just, you take four weeks off and just go to the same pub that you went to every night before then you did it, but it was like you were on a holiday. 
Because it was full of strangers. Strangers. And you didn't have to get up the next day to go to work. <laughs> and, like, you know, you'd meet a guy and then, oh, you know, sometimes one Mardi Gras you might have this sort of, like, four-week fling if you were lucky enough to meet them. The amount of, like, my friends that we'd all have, like, you know, we'd meet somebody right at the first week um, at the launch party and then, you know, you'd break up the week <laughs> after the Mardi Gras was on. So it's four weeks later, you've broken up. Like, that's not a boyfriend. But, oh, my God, oh, my God, my boyfriend's leaving me to go back to the States, <laughs> you know. Oh, so let's talk about the midnight shift. Mm. Should, and should I call it the shift if I want to appear like a regular? Yes, yes, you could, should call it the shift. Now, I was going to say, that's what. Okay. That's right, that's the story I was going to tell you. So it used to be called Tropicana. And so this is before my time, but I, when I lived in, that's the story I was telling you, when I lived in Wallara, I was doing drag at the Albury and I remember sitting there and talking to this um, uh, drag queen called Monique St. James. No, Monique St. John. I always got them confused. It was a Monique St. James and a Monique St. John's. <laughs> and they were like part of the original Lay Girls. Mm-hmm. And if you ever had the opportunity to sit down and get drunk and talk all night with one of them, it was just a fantastic opportunity because you heard all these old stories. But she was telling me the story about how um, when it was called Tropicana, so they'd be doing, the girls would be doing their shows and they'd get a call from the manager that you need to take the outfits home today and clean them. And then the next day they'd wake up And there'd be a story in the paper that there'd been a a fire (laughs) at the club. (laughs) And that was how they got a new, um, the the club would be rejuvenated and they'd do this nearly every every year or so apparently. Um, (laughs) I know, yeah, it's insurance. But um, the shift that um, that I know, I mean, it comes in two phases. The early 90s for me, there was the upstairs bar and it was all about dancing and, you know, you'd get there at 10 o'clock in the evening or like 1 o'clock the next day even and you'd leave at 10 o'clock in the morning or 9 o'clock in the morning. Um, we, I had a group, as I mentioned before, a group of 10, 12, 15 friends and over this um, – a course of 10 odd years or more um, that we would just meet there and that was our sort of space. We would be at one of the pool tables at the back um, in the beginning of the evening and then make our way to the dance floor and we would do this pretty much every night. I mean, there was a period there where I would go out pretty much seven nights of the week um, because you could. Because you can lived you imagine, up the road. Can you imagine doing that now? No. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know what, can I just say that's also not an age thing because, like, there were people that were in their 40s, 50s doing it then. Um, I don't know what it is. It's interesting. You just move. I mean, I'm living in the French countryside. But, oh, I mean, uh, there's, there's far more know, television as well, like, to catch up Yes. On. I know. How could I you watch just, the like, housewives? If you're going out every night, yeah. I wanted to ask, um, so in 94, Priscilla comes out, Muriel's wedding comes out, and there's this like huge moment of gay being in the mainstream and it being kind of embraced and accepted. Did you notice that shift and that difference on Oxford Street? Absolutely. Um, So in a way, I will say that um, there was, so Priscilla caused the death of one bar and the birth of another. 
So the Albury, in my humble opinion, this is just my humble opinion, um, there was probably many factors to it. But as a as a religious goer of the Albury, I would go there all the time. I did drag there. I hung out there. Um, uh, a famous uh, gay footballer once cracked onto me there. Um, I said <laughs> no. Um, I was why a young little you twink. Why did you say no? Because he wasn't my type. Doesn't matter. He wasn't my like, type. You need this story no. for later. No, I don't. I've got plenty of stories. <laughs> Hello. I'm the only person to be medically retired from MasterChef. I'll make my own stories. Um, so the Albury, re- because it was sort of the heart of drag um, in Sydney at the time, you had sort of two sort of feel. You had the people in Newtown that were doing shows at the Newtown and then the Albury, uh, the Imperial, um, which is where a lot of Priscilla was filmed. But the Albury was the sort of the eastern suburbs site of mm-hmm. um, of drag. It was a different type of drag. There was a lot of younger drag like myself. And so what happened to the Albury was the hen nights, the straight girls, just I absolutely took over the place. And mm. at that and that was because of Priscilla, because it was great in the beginning because it was, you know, they were coming with us. But then it got to the stage that it just became uncomfortable because they were coming then with their boyfriends and not with their gay friends. And it just became an unco- uncomfortable space. And I think that the owners sort of just got a bit sick of it and they got made an offer. Um, a real estate offer that they couldn't refuse and that was the end of the bar. And I think that they really just sort of um, got a bit sick of that. Whereas on the other point of view, the Imperial was just somewhere that we just sort of went and we saw a show and you didn't hang out afterwards and you went there after the Newtown um, shows and you really only went if you were a real diehard fan of Mm. the drag queens that were going there, Um, apart from maybe on a Friday night. But, um, you know, my drag actually when I did drag was part of that Priscilla thing because they absolutely just took off and they couldn't put on enough shows and they didn't have enough drag queens. And I remember, thankfully, I had this uh, uh, Caroline Clark was the drag queen. She's now passed away and Kevin was a really good um, friend to me. And he and I had a conversation and um, after a show Um, where he said, is this really what you want to do? Because you know that when you're out, people are going to know you as Andromeda. And that was what was starting to happen. So people would come and hang out with us at the shift and they would be calling me Andromeda and I'm a boy. And, like, that's not good for when I wanted to pick up and have a root. Um, uh, Just so that everybody knows, uh, root in Australian is um, the technical term for um, playing Scrabble. Um, (laughs) Thank you for saying that because it was going through my mind. Like, should I interject? <laughs> yeah, and um, and and Caroline was right. It wasn't what I wanted. I didn't want that, and she could see that. So I I didn't pursue that sort of drag career. So, to speak. but so what? So so because drag was cock blocking you, you gave it up. Yes, yes, but uh, that yeah. I mean, it wasn't. Mm. But that wasn't a bad thing. No, no, no. Well, I didn't see it as a bad thing, but no, yeah, I just, I, like, I didn't really know who I was. I mean, I don't really think I knew who I was until I was 30. But just to get back on the, about the, the, the Imperial at that time, the, for just to finish what I was saying, there was that, um, 
it took off from that sh- that movie mm. and that then created a space there that was uh i think it was more inclusive than what was happening at the Aubrey because they really put money into the shows and the shows were like they actually had a priscilla show there and it ran for ages like years and years and years but yes priscilla changed things um i think that um Going back to Oxford Street, it really did change Oxford Street. A lot more girls used to come and I think a lot more people came to Mardi Gras because of Priscilla Mm. and so that was a good thing. Um, But, again, you know, it brought bad things as well. It brought, um, uh, you know, some attention on the place that maybe wasn't really what we wanted. Like like a kind of queer tourism kind of thing where people would come to look. Yes. I remember sitting with a friend at um, watching Mardi Gras out the front of the shift and she brought her daughter and I cringed when she said that she told her daughter that we were going to see the circus. (gasps) And it's like, yeah. Yep. But, you like, there wasn't representation then. There wasn't things. So how how can she in explain to, to her daughter in the early nineties what it was? There wasn't that. There wasn't anything to compare for. I'm not justifying that, but I'm just saying that there's not. I didn't well, judge. You say, well, like couldn't you have said that it was like a Christmas parade? Except well, yes, more glittery. Yes, yes. All right, let's get in but touch again, with her. And I think that's hindsight. Yes, <laughs> I think that's a hindsight again. Like I, it's like the parent argument. I, I just, yeah, I, I don't, I don't. I think we all learnt from our lessons, and it's about what we say now. And I'm sure that in 20 years' time, people are going to be talking about the things that we've said today. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and how would we have said yeah, that? Yeah, no, it's how in could a we context. But so, isn't it just yeah. so interesting that those kind of microaggressions they just stay with you? Like that stayed yes. with you all this time. Yes. And, and it wasn't her intention to offend you or upset you, but she's effectively said, like, you are a circus freak. Yes. And people, there was this, I don't know, I think when you were, when when you're younger, things are, you know, I don't know, things are different. Um, the way that you act and the way that you say things to each other and stuff, I, 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 when I turned 30, I really started to accept myself more and accept my body and who I was and I would was a lot more comfortable in my body. And I remember the very first time I was dancing um, on the dance floor at the shift downstairs, uh, hot summer day, really, really hot inside, and I took my shirt off. So I, woo, I danced without my shirt on. And my best friend told me to put my shirt back on. And I just thought, yeah, no, and you're not really that good a friend at the moment. Like, why did he care, like, that I was, like, didn't have my shirt on Mm. when, like, pretty much half the bar didn't have their shirt on? Like, why did he care what I looked like? What, because I was hanging out with him? And so I took my shirt off and I didn't go to the gym for, like, six months beforehand, well, neither had half the people in the bar. It was a hot, sweaty day. But people just say stupid things sometimes. I have to say them all the time, but, you know, 
That's why I have a podcast. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, no, no absolutely. And like most of the time when people say something to you, it's really about them. But like, yes. you know, you can understand that on one level while still being fucked up about it on another. <laughs> yes. So best just not to talk to people is what I think. Yes. Just to, just avoid them. Yes. Um, well, it was hard to do when we used to go there. But then again, that was the death knell, I think. Um, well, I think that the death knell for me of going out was that I met my husband. And um, <laughs> This sounds familiar. Yeah. But one <laughs> of the things that came across with that was also that, um, uh, and I think this happened in our group all the time, but nobody really stepped out of the group for longer than, say, six months. Um, or if they did, they usually brought their their partner, their boyfriend with them and they, they became part of the group mm-hmm. um, and uh, the family. But not a lot of us, like a lot of us were always just single and single for the whole time that we were there as a group together. And I think that... Um, one of the things that happened was that um, Peter, like he didn't really party. He wasn't like a party queen. So we met at three o'clock in the morning at the shift. Um, I remember it distinctly. I was dancing on the dance floor my, with uh, in a corner to Christine Aguilera's uh, Beautiful and there was somebody <laughs> wait, else wait, there. Wait. Was it a dance? Was it a dance remix? No, no, yes, it was actually. Okay. I think it was. Actually, it might not have been. Yeah, I don't think it was in the heyday of the <laughs> that wasn't the heyday of the midnight shift, can I just say? Um I was dancing to Christine Aguilera's beautiful and um I thought, yeah, no, I'm the only one on the dance floor. Actually, there was somebody else uh, on the dance floor at the same time as me. And I looked over and I thought, he's going to think that I'm interested in him and I'm not uh, because we're both the only people dancing on the dance floor um, to this beautiful song. And I think it's about time I went home because I was the only one there. Like none of my friends were there that night. And I thought, yep, I'm going to go home. And um, I was walking out the door and walked past and saw Peter and I gave him a bit of a look and I continued to walk and I thought, look, I'll just turn around and see if he's there. And I just turned <gasps> around and I saw that he was there and the rest is history and we've been together ever since. A good Aww. long 17 years. So, so, so people do o'clock. meet at gay night clubs so in the morning. Three o'clock the in the morning. 4th of April. So you were a hot, sweaty mess. Yes. You'd just been like emoting yes. to Christina Aguilera's beautiful. What was the first thing you said to him? But no, but I was in a hot, sweaty mess. I was beautiful, uh, no matter what you say. I'm not, I'm not saying you weren't beautiful. I'm just, <laughs> just like painting, painting a picture here. What was the first thing you said to each other? Mm, I'm not going to say because I'll get in trouble. <gasps> oh. We didn't say anything. We just passed. Um, and that's oh, okay. it. That's all I'm going to say. That's the way I remember it anyway. Peter remembers it a different way. <laughs> and this is what happens when you've been with someone for 17 years. It all gets blurry. So just another quick translation for listeners. Yes. Pash means snog. <gasps> and snog means kiss. Yes. So like, so the venue had has a very big significance for you being it's where you met your husband. Yes. Do you remember hearing about it closing? Um, yes. And, uh, look, I'm very sad that it closed. I think um, 
again, my humble opinion, um, I think it was a perfect storm that caused it to close, to be honest. And also, can I just say a perfect storm that caused the whole of the Sydney scene to just like it's just not around like it used to be. Like, you know, like I talked about it before in the 90s, like we're talking that it was multiple venues. Like you had, like there was like at least 10 or 12 different venues just on the one street that you were comfortable and that you could go to and that's just not there now. But I think that the perfect storm that happened in Sydney was, uh, and I, people, a lot of people say apps change things and I don't blame apps because in Melbourne there's still plenty of clubs that have been around for a long time and there's new clubs have opened up and around the world even, you know, in Paris there's clubs and, and things. I, I don't think you can blame apps and for everything. But in Sydney I think that it was a combination of apps, it was a combination of acceptance from everybody, so you didn't have to go to a ghetto anymore. You could just go to your local pub and and have mm-hmm. you know a group of friends that accepted you. Um, so apps acceptance and um, the property. The it was that the councils and uh, wanted to rezone and and have residential buildings there and and just basically change up the whole of that area and that whole of Oxford Street, and so it became this perfect storm. Um, and that's why I think you've seen venues close there. Um, and also property prices in Australia are so expensive and there's no way as a young gay you could afford to live no matter what your income. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. wages may be really good in Australia, but you couldn't afford the house that we used to live in in Surrey Hills. I mean, I think I paid like $80 a week for my room. Um, that was a three-bedroom house. So what's that? That's like. I think, yeah, I think it was like $220 a week or something, our rent for a three-bedroom house in Surrey Hills. Like, and that was expensive. Mm. Like, there's no way that people, like, people are paying a fortune now for that sort of stuff. There's no way that young guys could go there and live in a shared house and and have that same experience. Um, So, yeah, I, I think it was, it's really sad. I mean, there's all these venues that... You know, when we were there, when I was there, I experienced the Albrecht closing. And what happened when the Albrecht closed was that for me, especially, drag moved to the inner west. So it was cemented there because of Priscilla. And so when the Albrecht closed, you went to the Newtown and the Imperial to see drag shows. And yeah, there were still drag shows in on Oxford Street, but it's not what I went for. It wasn't the type of drag that I wanted and like that a lot of people wanted to go see. So it was more regulated to sort of, you know, the odd bar or two. And you went to Oxford Street to dance hmm. and hang out with people and play pool and stuff like that. Um, so when all the other venues started to close, um, you know, the Flinders, uh, you know, um, even um, I think Arc, it changed after a while from my from what I understand. So um, you didn't have DCMs, you didn't have the exchange. Um, that was sort of the death knell and mm. the midnight shift became one of them. Mm. And it was sad. Do you have any memories of Sydney's queer scene that you want to share? Well, if you do, I would love to hear from you. I want to build the biggest record of queer spaces and the memories that they held. 
Find me at lostspacespodcast.com and go to the page, submit a space. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as Lost Spaces Pod. Find out more about Andrew by checking out Cooking Fabulously on YouTube and the Fabulously Delicious podcast, which are all about French food and the fabulous people that make it. You can also find him via his website, andrewpriorfabulously.com. And don't worry, I'll make sure that this is all in the show notes for the program. Lost Spaces is not only a podcast, but a concept record as well. I have been writing songs about queer venues and the memories that they held, and will be releasing songs on a trickle basis over the coming year. You can hear the first single, which is called Well Room Boys, and is playing underneath my talking right now, coincidentally, on all good streaming platforms. If you liked this episode, I would really appreciate if you subscribed, left a review on your podcast player of choice, or just told someone who you think might be interested in giving it a little listen to. I am Kay Anderson, and you have been listening to Lost Spaces. <laughs>